The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at First, first listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a new guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. Today, I'm really excited to have Tom Rath on the show. Tom is an author, researcher, and speaker whose books have sold more than 5 million copies and have been translated into 16 languages. His books, all of which become bestsellers, include How Full Was Your Bucket, Strengths Finder 2.0, Wellbeing, Eat, Move, Sleep, and his latest book is Are You Fully Charged? The Three Keys to Energizing Your Work and Life. Thanks, Tom, for being on here today. Thanks so much. I've been looking forward to talking with you. Me too. I've been a long-time admirer of your work and um, the path that you've gone on, uh, which has been a bit of a different path than the the path of um, the development of the field of positive psychology. I thought we could actually talk about um, these two different paths. One, you know, the the uh, the the great work that your grandfather Donald Clifton did. Um, many call him the father of strengths-based psychology and kind of talk a little bit about how that um, relates now to the latest science of human flourishing. So maybe you could just start off by telling me a little bit about um, your grandfather and his and his great work. Yeah, you know, I've got a kind of an interesting uh, personal backstory as it applies to positive psychology. I was um, at the uh, IPA event earlier this year and I was joking with a few people that I kind of feel like Forrest Gump walking through all these things as an observer in the history of that. Um, and it, I think it's when I started at Gallup uh, way back in the 98, 99, and I, I, after college, I went to Michigan and went to join my grandfather, Don Clifton, to um, help him figure out. He was trying to determine what are the best ways to use this new internet thing that was the rage at the time to 
uh, help people to learn a little bit more about their strengths and who they are. And Don had been doing a lot of that with telephone interviews and face-to-face interviews for 30, 40 years at these strengths assessments that we'd interview people and figure out, do they have the right talents that match a job in teaching or a job in sales or a job driving a truck, a variety of professions. And um, we were essentially trying to answer the question, can you aggregate a lot of these themes of human personality and bring that to the surface in one web-based tool? And so we went through a lot of iterations of that and started the conversation. And at about the same time, um, Don had reached out to uh, Marty Seligman, who'd been working with uh, Ed Diener, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, and a, a host of other uh, top psychologists who I admired growing up with that as my major and when I was in my undergrad. Um, and he was saying, what can I do to help? Because there was this burgeoning thought about positive psychology and the, um, what it was called at the time. There was this Wellsprings assessment that I think evolved into VIA. Um, <clears throat> that Don was trying to help and contribute with. And uh, then eventually after those conversations advanced, uh, I was at the first kind of positive psychology summit that we hosted in Lincoln, Nebraska. I think it was somewhere around 99 or 2000. And that's really when I saw the energy around positive psychology coalescing. And um, it started to create an important mainstream conversation there. So, um, anyhow, then Don and I continued to work on StrengthsFinder and trying. He wanted to, he kind of had this thought, do you think we can get this out to 100,000 people someday? And that was the big dream at the time. And um, that, that's since gone on to, I think, reach maybe 15 million people to give them uh, some initial clue about their strengths. So it was successful beyond uh, his dreams back when he was around. And so Don and then Don and I worked on our my first book, How Full Is Your Bucket, together when I was uh, traveling around with him to, uh, as a part of his cancer treatment, uh, he found out he had stage four gastroesophageal cancer and we were moving around to different parts around the country because I've had a lot of personal background with cancer and um, he challenged me to help him work on this book about this dipper and bucket, which was kind of a real basic idea and metaphor related to positive psychology. So we had a chance to pull together a lot of the um, best high-level research from that emerging field in that first book we worked on together. And um, then Don, we finished that first draft before Don passed away. And um, I think it was around 03, within the book came out in 04. Um, and then my connection to positive psychology really kind of kept going after that point because as soon as uh, Marty decided to start the first applied positive psychology degree program at Penn, I dropped out of the graduate program I was in midstream at Hopkins and jumped into that program right away because I was so excited about it and got to be a part of the first class there, which was a great experience. And um, I've since spent a lot of time teaching that class and meeting a lot of the great uh, thinkers, both teaching in the program and professionals coming out of it now, which is even more fun to watch. So it's, it's been a really unique way to kind of have a front row seat from a lot of the people I've admired most over the years. Absolutely. And I, you know, I want to emphasize the field of positive psychology owes um, a major debt or not debt, but gratitude, I should say, to Donald Clifton and, um, and, and his, his thinking that we need to um, learn and study what is right with people. And that's, that's a sentiment that's echoed 
over and over again in files of psychology. You know, some people will say, you know, um, the field of pop psychology is about um, what's best within us, right? So um, a lot of those roots were were uh, were, were there with, with Donald. So, yeah, you know, I think there's it's kind of fun. There's a fundamental concept there that I think your listeners might enjoy. That it, you know, it's an I see it with uh, my kids are four and six right now, where there's a natural disposition that I've observed and studied over the years where it, it's kind of our nature when we're raising kids or managing people in the workplace to focus on that. You know, you've got someone who's at a negative seven, how do you get them back to negative three or maybe zero? And it, it is important to do that. It's important to address big glaring weaknesses for kids and for people in the workplace and everything else. But I also have a lot of fear that Don talked about nonstop and, and I've heard many others in positive psychology talk about, which is that we're, ignoring the ability to take someone who's already a plus four to a plus eight or a plus nine where there may be even more room for growth in that area of the curve where someone does have a little bit more natural talent than the next person in that specific area. Oh, well, that's a very interesting point. I mean, that's um, do- that, that, that dovetails nicely with some of my interests in gifted education and gifted, talented education. And um, what do you do with um, an education system? Um, where uh, we have this kind of one-size-fits-all approach and people are able to self-actualize at different rates um, through, uh, you know, the learning program, you know, and our school system is not set up very well at all for um, for that. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, actually. Yeah. yeah, I'd be interested to hear some of your thoughts on the, I mean, just how do you, what are the best ways to individualize uh, not only based on just general intelligence levels, but um, at, at more of a personality level as well in schools, I think, because there's, in addition to the well-studied dynamics of kind of emotional intelligences and uh, general mental ability and so forth, that I think there's a much broader range of human personality that really gets tailored to perhaps even less across some of those spectrums in the educational system today. I completely agree. I wonder how much you've worked with education because I think a very worthy project and something I would definitely be interested in working on is to see how um, we can bring the strengths finder, bring the character strength survey. Uh, because I was going to ask you later in the show, you know, what, what's, what are the similarities and differences? Cause I know you did your, uh, your thesis on that topic. Um, but maybe we don't have, no, we don't need to, we, we don't need to choose one or the other, right? I mean, as holistic an assessment as possible, um, I think would be really valuable to educators. And then, um, you know, something I would be very interested in working on is to, um, to, to see how when we, just like you've done in the business world, you found, th- you know, really important findings like um, managers who focus on the strengths of their employees um, uh, significantly, significantly reduce um, their uh, – their disengagement at work, for instance. Um, these are really important findings, and, and and I would love to show this in the education world as well. So this is a conversation I wasn't even expecting to have it right now with you, but it's uh, I'm glad that I'm glad we went there because I think that there's a great untapped potential to use um, lots of these uh, current assessments that go beyond um, go beyond standardized test scores and IQ test scores, and uh, and um, identify character strengths as well as themes of talent. Um, we, we can, we can assess, we can use both scales and, and more, right? Yeah, I think so. I think we need a lot more than we have now. One of the, one of the fun things that, uh, Don and I were doing 
long time ago, we were trying to figure out how low can you go in terms of uh, assessing or observing more natural tendencies and talents of young children in school systems um, with how far can you go with an assessment? And then when do you need to get into observation? And uh, then when I was at the program in, at Penn, I, Chris Peterson was my advisor. And I know he and Nan Suk has been a lot of time looking at how, how far can you go with kind of early self-reports to get at uh, some of the dynamics of personality and values at those ages? And then when do you need to rely on the uh, observations of outsiders and teachers and parents, which takes even more time and effort, but may be worth it at some of those young ages if for no other reason than the big boost in self-efficacy you get out of it for kids. So I know I know I'm at Gallup and others we've kind of tried to get down to those ages of um, anywhere between eight to thirteen, and then again, Strengths Finder reviews with people older than that with very basic self-assessments, but I'm just as interested in how do you um, help kids to build on some early victories and help parents and teachers to see that well before you can do reliable self-assessments with pictures and words and stuff like that. So that's it's interesting where a lot of the work that you've done with um, studying natural content that's produced uh, from people and online networks, I think my hunch is that maybe you start to get there in terms of I mean, just looking at some of the coding of words kids are using at a young age to figure it out, or something like that. Anyhow, yeah, and that's uh, and you're you're referencing the great work that um, the World Wellbeing Project are doing, and Johannes and um, and others. Um, yeah, that that could be one potential tool. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, uh, I'm very interested in like creativity and intelligence uh, and, and imagination. And do those are those included as part of the? Is that a theme of talent? Imagination. Well, yeah, it, it's there's a whole set of. I mean, what we looked at originally, and this was kind of in the the factor structure when we were developing uh, StrengthsFinder from the outset, is there are these large clusters of themes that naturally hold together. And for the business world, in a, in the leadership book I wrote, we called that strategic thinking. But most of those themes are really the those are the people on a team who are have maybe a more natural disposition to spend time uh, alone musing and they enjoy that and think more about where things are going in the future and that vision versus some of the more relationship or uh, operation oriented or selling influence oriented talents. So StrengthsFinder kind of clusters out into four meta categories uh, instead of it being kind of an individual theme in isolation because that's such a big part of any successful team or life. That makes sense. I wonder what the um, relationship what, – what is conceptually the difference between a character strength, a talent, and a personality trait? Boy, that's a question I could, <laughs> yeah, I could uh, write off. I, 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 I mean we can discuss it. I, it it's something most, I, I, you know, I'm wondering too. Yeah. What do you think? I think that the talent in, in – Gal, I mean, in the work that I've done at Gallup in the past, talent has been kind of a narrow band in that definition of what are some of the least malleable personality traits that you can count on consistently over years, okay. to be real specific, which is different, very different from the way a lot of other books talk about the concept of talent real broadly. And then, the, so really what's interesting is that, you know, Gallup, of course, I was part of this 
maybe not so great decision, but we call it strengths finder. And really what that thing measures is talent, not strength, which is right. more the product of bringing in a lot of knowledge and practice and skill and all those other things that are important. Um, so that's talent and personality traits in the work I've been a part of uh, are, are pretty closely aligned. When I study the, um, not only the origins, which I followed uh, being close to it of the uh, via the values and action assessment, it seems to me that um, that was based on more of a review of uh, experts over time and current thoughts and leadership thought leaders about what are some of the most universal values. And then um, this has been a long time, but uh, in one of my classes, Chris Peterson was showing us how within the via having a lot of strength across many of the domains is an asset in terms of predicting positive outcomes. Whereas the a little bit different than a lot of the work that we've done around talent that is measured by StrengthsFinder where you'd essentially want to spend a, a maximum amount of time investing in the top three or five themes in your sequence instead of trying to balance out or round out the entire continuum of 34. So that's that was one of the key distinctions I could see on the surface, at least. And have you mapped on your um, your uh, strengths or your talent areas to uh, the Big Five framework? Yes, very early on, um, we did a, we did a lot of mapping back then with a couple of researchers at UCLA and at Harvard, um, Chip Anderson, Phil Stone, through. Not only we started with kind of big five as conceptual roots, but then um, also looking at a lot of the uh, very popular assessments that were out there, the Myers-Briggs and the DISC and some of those other tests to look at where the conceptual overlaps are. And there are more papers out there available on the Internet that I can kind of keep track of in terms of specific mapping. And that honestly, the one that I'm uh, most interested in studying for the future is how do you how do you help people to make better decisions about their uh, work and careers in those foundational years in particular based on where they have some natural talent i don't know that anyone's done enough to connect those dots yet no they haven't and you know the researchers who study talent um are, are i think stuck in in so many of these uh academic debates that um, they're, that they're not really even they're missing some of the most important questions in a mm. way um, you know so you'll see um, back and forth is it nature or nurture you know these kinds of you know and, and it's it's obviously both but then you know behavioral geneticists will use twin studies and show look all these talents have a heritability coefficient and then mm. you know like um, researchers investigating um, child development will say look the environment matters and then but 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 in a way like once we just agree okay it's nature nurture fine let's move on you know right. I, think, I think there are bigger questions to answer i'm i'm uh, absolutely with that i mean i you know it's kind of the people say well should you just focus on your strengths not your weaknesses i'm like that sounds pretty reckless to me based on everything i've looked at it's got i mean there, there's always a balance there. and another big i think misnomer on some of the talent personality research is that um you know, we think that these are things that you, you can just change anything and be you want to be and be anything you want to be. And 
obviously that's very hard to do on the other end of the continuum as well. So I'd like to figure out smarter ways to help people map some of those things back. And along those lines, I was wondering, based on the some of the most recent work you've been doing, Scott, mm-hmm. what what do you see as some of the most interesting or uh, innovative ways to help people have more self-awareness about what they're naturally good at without it being as a, without it taking a lot of their time to provide some of those insights. I mean, I even step back sometimes and think that, you know, asking people to go through a 30, 60 minute questionnaire to uh, yield that kind of self-awareness and insight has proven to be very effective in some cases. And it's kind of the other end of the spectrum from a, a quick little quiz you take on the internet with no reliability at all. But have you seen some other means to give people pretty useful insights there? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think that um, in addition to being interested in, in what people are good at, I'm also interested in, in um, learning what, pe- what makes people, uh, what inspires people. And that's kind of a different question. You can be like inspired um, by someone's great, um, like Michael Jordan's great dunk or a humanitarian's wonderful, that without actually being good at it yet. And, and that inspiration in itself can be a, a, a driving force to excellence in, in that. So, um, so uh, what I'm really interested in is the whole literature on inspiration. And, um, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with Todd Thrash's work. Um, I'm not. And, not. Um, yeah. And uh, he's done the, this great work on inspiration showing that it has these specific qualities that when people encounter a stimulus, it's a very spontaneous thing. So when you're really inspired – um, it's not usually a willed thing. It's usually something you've come in, you've come in contact with a stimulus that inspires you, and it makes you see greater possibilities for yourself. It's it, and um, and that does change everything. They they've 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 had like they've had uh, they've they've uh, measured the cre- creativity of uh, writing samples. For instance, they had it rated for the creativity, and they found and they had people keep track of all along the process how inspired they were to while they were writing. They found that. After the moment of inspiration, there was much greater efficiency of word choice. Um, the creativity was – there was much greater creativity in what they were doing. It's almost like the person took on a whole different persona, a whole different being. So what I, what I found um, increases this sort of inspiration is um, is really just um, giving people the opportunity to ex, you know expose them to as many different potential identities as possible. Like you need to like really expand mm-hmm. the breadth of – possible points of inspiration um, that you could you can do um, and you you put them in um, uh, contact with lots of um, inspiring role models um, lots of different subjects so you just expose them to lots of different subjects without knowing beforehand what 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 is going to be their their you know um, what what might be calling them or what might be inspiring them um, and also project based learning is another big one that I found um, is important um, usually when people start working on um, personally meaningful projects, even if they're not good at it, um, it, it's it almost is like um, it builds on each other. It, 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 that um, every time they make progress towards the goal, it, it it slowly transforms their whole being. You know, not just one aspect of themselves, but their whole being. Um, so I, I think what I'm saying, you know, um, it relates a lot to the work you've done, um, even the work you've done on well-being, right? Yeah, and it's interesting. That I... 
I think you're getting into something there that's that's been that's very important in terms of exposure to these kind of potential inspirations and identities because I I kind of grew up through the lens of looking at assessments and personality uh, through an IO psychology lens where for many, many years, uh, the field of IO psychology, at least, had been pretty dismissive of interests and passions because unlike general mental ability or uh, kind of personality traits, it didn't predict job performance, especially in entry-level roles very well. So just because you're interested in being a pharmaceutical salesperson doesn't mean you're going to be good at it necessarily, right? Um, Right. However, the the more recent research I've studied, when you look through the lens of well-being, it matters a lot for the individual's well-being. It's just the companies who were paying the bills for these tests before didn't care about that as much. Um, So I, I think that's a whole new perspective that we kind of need to bring into this science of how do you help people find optimal track and career there. And I'm I'm also really interested in your thought about how do you, in this day and age, what are some new ways to expose people to new possibilities of their identities? Because I, you know, as I was doing some of the research for the Are You Fully Charged book, I think I was going back. And if you look at the number of uh, people over kind of 20, 30 year longitudinal studies who are still in the same job or career as their mother or father. It's just frightening how hard it is for people to see out of a narrow band of a lens of, just in terms of what's possible, right? Absolutely. So there've got to be better ways to do that nowadays. There's got to be better ways. There's got to be better ways that um, uh, that that you as as an individual can is from like a self-determination point of view without the help of others can figure out how to do that and then there's also got to be a way for um for people in a position to be able to do that to help support that like if you're a manager or a teacher it's so there's like both ways right there's mm-hmm. like <laughs> both perspectives um right so like you write a lot of um ter- really terrific um and uh, in preparation for this interview i've like have all your books on my shelf right now and i've and uh and i've been going through them it helps that they're um they're 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 concise <laughs> so thank you for that um a lot of uh books can be really jargony and can really uh, convolute the message but you get right right to the point um but your um your books are do a great service for both perspectives because the individual interested in in gaining great insight to themselves can pick up one of your books or take one of your tests and can gain great insight without even if they're in an environment where their managers or other people around them just have no clue how to how to inspire mm-hmm. or to do that and, but also you know people like like managers etc can read your books and gain great insights how to bring out the best in their workers so your books do a great service of that. But, the, you know, the question is even going beyond these books, you know, how can we change um, uh, structures so that people are always seeing greater possibilities? And and if you don't mind, I'd like to bring in um, maybe an elephant in the room here, um, maybe it, which is, I think, a valid criticism of the field of positive psychology. And that's that, you know, um, in very – very poor, poor, you know, low social economic status areas. Um, uh, a lot of um, a lot of uh, racial and ethnic minority groups. Um, they don't have the luxury of 
of that level yet, you know, from a Maslow perspective, they can't shoot right to the, the self-actualization stage, right? They're trying to like, mm-hmm. so the question also is how can they see greater possibilities in, in, even though they're in an environment where there, there doesn't seem like there's much hope. Is that a fair question? I think it's a fair question, and I think it's an important point for people who have interest in psychology and positive psychology because um, I, I think I think it was uh, Adam Grant who was writing recently about how you know if you if you say you're doing something with behavioral economics, it sounds so different than if you say you're coming in and talking about positive psychology just <laughs> on the surface, right? And and the, and the problem I, I've I've talked to many classes. And, People in positive psychology, sometimes it's easy to assume that because you put the word positive in front of psychology, that that throws people in a different direction with their thinking, oh, it's only a luxury or whatever. But it's really easy. I have my, both my undergrad and graduate degrees are in psychology. And it's, and I've grown up in a household psychologist. And it's really easy for me to see that the word psychology is a much bigger problem than the word positive in that equation. Um, because the average American who hears the word psychology, they barely delineate it from psychiatry and think of it as something that people use when they're in need of counseling. So it's the, the stigmas there with a label are very different in some cases from the actual science of the influence it has on people across socioeconomic groups. So I, I want to delineate that a little bit because I think the tools that I've seen um, coming out of teams at Pan and elsewhere and the things that I've been a part of at Gallup where we're working in inner city school districts to help kids uncover their talents and share that with teachers and parents, that does as much for uh, post outcomes like uh, self-confidence and direction and altruism uh, across that spectrum. And I would argue that um, in some of my own personal experiences, my wife's taught in several schools around the D.C. area here that um, the kids who are often in more need of time and attention because they don't have as much time with parents who are working real hard and who are in more need of that confidence boost that you get from some of these interventions are in the schools that are less advantaged. So I, when I look at the interventions, I don't see the ones that I've been close to or studied at least as um, having any more or less benefit for kids who grow up in a high socioeconomic status area, for example. Well, that's really good news. That that is good news because, uh, and, and again, I think I see great great potential for adapting a lot of the work you've done um, into gifted and talented identification practices, um, as well as just general education uh, for all students. Um, because you do the reality of the matter is that. Um, 98% of students in gifted and talented programs in this country are white middle class. So we're obviously mm. missing out on um, a whole lot of talent um, and, um, and as well as a whole diversity of, of, of humankind. So um, I just see great, great, great uh, potential for adapting these kinds of things. And, uh, you know, um, yeah. it's, it's interesting on that thought that one of the I've spent most of the last year working on this documentary around Fully Charged, and one of the groups featured in there is the KIPP schools and Dave Levin, who's been a big part of that. He was one of the co-founders. And, I mean, they have a – they use a lot of the concepts. I spent time with their teachers on some of the eat, move, sleep elements from this, and they use a lot of the um, general constructs from positive psychology, but they put it into their own programs. They put it into their own words. They put it into their own language, and um, I, I've seen it have – real powerful uh, 
messaging and mission and efficacy there over the years. So let's move on to this topic of well-being. Um, so just uh, cultivating your strengths from a talent perspective, even that will not necessarily make make you know give you high well-being in life, right? There's more to well-being than just a talent and then just developing a talent. Um, so let's let's talk about some of the things you've discovered. Um, going going uh, back to your book on well-being, which I, I just read, really liked it. Um, you you make a statement in there that much of what we think will improve well-being is either misguided or just plain wrong. Would you say that that's still the case uh, since that book came out that you see in the media or you see in the public a lot a misguided notion of what it means to have well-being? Yes, I, we when we worked on that book, well-being, it was interesting because we were looking at what are the core dimensions. When people look at, uh, think about, and evaluate their lives in a very general sense, and that's how we kind of defined well-being for the original Gallup research, and it divided into these uh, five areas overall that were kind of your career well-being, social well-being, financial well-being, physical well-being, and community well-being. And after we did that research, I said to uh, one of my colleagues on our research team, you know we see the pretty even weighting across those five factors in terms of how they contribute to both daily experience and overall life sat life satisfaction. And I said, what if, what if we ask people to make their own weighting? And I said, should we, should we allow people to just kind of shift the weighting themselves for these domains? And so we put that question out on a national survey and said, here are these uh, dimensions of your well-being. How would you assign the points overall? If you had 100 points, how would you break them out? And I don't know if we ever published this piece, but the the people who most people assign disproportional points to physical health, physical well-being and financial well-being, far more than uh, social well-being or their career or purpose, anything like that, or their community. And that's not consistent with the best way to get there based on what we saw. And it was almost kind of paradoxical where we found, overall, we found that the people who assigned the highest weighting to their financial well-being had the lowest overall well-being. And the people who assigned the highest weighting to their community well-being uh, had the highest overall well-being. So I, I think for people to step back and say, what is it I'm really yeah. trying to do here in terms of a meaningful impact on others in a community versus um, building up a pile of cash that gets taxed and expires when you die. I mean, it's are very, very different things. Yeah, and this individual differences thing, I don't think is really discussed enough in the field of positive psychology, you know, like this PERMA model that there are these, um, that the Martin Seligman has, um, that these are these are the important things. But some people might really, really, really care about more, like achievement more than the others, for instance. Mm -hmm. And And not only that, but I find like, you know, in the business world or uh, entrepreneurs, I mean, there are people legitimately like, uh, like Donald Trump really loves money. Do you think his well-being would be higher if he if he suddenly woke up tomorrow – if he like went through an addiction program and like discovered <laughs> that he cares more about his community than he does about winning? Do you think he actually would do – do you think positive psychology applies to Donald Trump? People like I think that? if he did that, I think it would really freak people out right now. <laughs> um, but in no, and in seriousness, I yeah. I think there's a huge there, there's such a continuum of uh, individual differences in terms of what we want and need and how we want to get there that um, 
But the, you know, the first project I worked on at Gallup, we were trying to put together a StrengthsFinder-based program. This was before all the other books and stuff for college freshmen because they go through these orientation programs where it's usually one credit and you don't really get a lot out of it. And um, we're trying to say, is, is there something they can go through that helps them figure out how to pick classes based on their individual personality traits. It helps them figure out how to build relationships based on whether they're more achievement oriented or whether they're more empathetic. And um, they, it was called Strength Quest and um, has kind of caught on with colleges since then. But yeah, I think it's that that kind of mapping where there were, we're telling kids if you have, um, let's, let's say you have the theme of uh, intellection, where you're always thinking, what are the right extracurriculars you might want to get involved with? We need to help people have better maps of what to do to create meaning and well-being that are more personalized. And I, I still just, I don't see much of that at all in the workplace today. It's more common general guidelines. Exactly. Exactly. Good. So I, I think we're definitely on the same page in that. Um, but regardless of what your um, your emphasis is in life, you make a really good point in your book that that um, the single biggest threat to our well-being tends to be ourselves. So we tend to get in our own way. Can you unpack um, how we how we do that in a, in a in a in terms of our time perspective? Yeah, you know that's what's been most interesting to me in the most recent work that I've done is that um, to a large degree. Uh, I, I would now argue that I think daily experiences, researcher would call it daily experience, I'd call it daily well-being, um, is a more important element to focus on than long-term life satisfaction that people usually measure with kind of that Cantrell ladder of life question um, that's reflective over many years and has more of a financial dependency. If for no, even if you, even if someone disagrees with me and they think, well, I want to really, I want to think I did really well when I reflect when I'm 75. Um, Still, the way to get there is through the daily well-being metrics. So what I've seen there is that there are certain things that we need to think about and build into our days on more of a momentary basis that contribute to not only a sense of well-being, but a sense that you're chipping away at something bigger than yourself from a meaning context and that it's the sum of those days uh, that leads to very different outcomes. And it's been, you'd probably find this interesting that, um, you know, I've had this impression studying well-being for well over a decade now that, you know, you always have these um, countries in Western Europe, you get the Switzerland's, the Denmark's, Finland's, the world that have these huge uh, well-being scores when you ask people reflective life satisfaction questions. But in some data that Gallup put out just in the last year, if you look at daily experience measures of positive affect and stress and feel whether people feel blue throughout the day and positive experiences, um, the countries at the top of those lists, they're all in central to South America. Mm-hmm. You get you get the Panama, uh, Paraguay, um, and, and several other countries in that region. Four of the top five on that daily experience measure are in the bottom half of the IMF's GDP per capita rankings of national wealth. Mm. So it's a, so it's, it's kind of a, um, telling me a very different picture about overall well-being. 
I think that a lot of what's going in there is also the um, the community aspect, right? The um, the some of these particular nations that 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 score so uh, high, and well, when you examine and go to those nations, you you see that um, there's a, there's a lot of support, even even if they live in very poor um, environments. Um, there's a lot of uh, 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 value placed on social relationships. Would you say that that's right? Yeah, and I when I get into these kind of elements of da- daily experience and well-being, I, if you go back to Teresa Mambablay and Stephen Kramer's work studying journal entries of workers across professions, it's these little moments throughout the day where you realize that you made something a little bit better than it otherwise would have been. So if, if someone uh, calls me because they're really frustrated about a product or a book or something that I've worked on, and I kind of get them back to neutral. I need to step back and acknowledge that's a little win throughout the day. And if I'm reading a book to my son tonight, and um, last night he recognized a new word, that's a, that's a real victory that's got to count towards my experience that I'm doing that day. And so when you think about our pro- forward progress we make at work or just our brief interactions with loved ones, do we smile and laugh a lot throughout the day? And then the the thing that I'd spent time on a few years ago with even more intensity is how do we make sure people have enough physical energy each day just to be their best? Forget about all the long-term health outcome stuff for a minute because no, that doesn't really motivate people to make different choices today. Um, how, how do I move around enough so that I can keep up with uh, four-year-olds and a six-year-old at five o'clock today? And then that gets me moving along. So the, the more I study the science, the more it all comes back to these moments and how do you help people to make slightly better decisions today that lead to what Barb Fredrickson would call kind of upward spirals. Absolutely. That's a, that's a great, uh, great question. And your latest book, Fully Charged, um, goes beyond your book on well-being, um, identifies these three factors really important um, for in, in the workplace and in your daily life. But um, I bet that uh, people in the workforce have really embraced this book because these things um, you can you can just see how they're they're lacking all across corporate America. Um, one is uh, meaning um, uh, where you talk about the importance of again going beyond. Uh, what you mentioned this also in well being going beyond just the pursuit of happiness um, to find sort of a higher calling. Um, and uh, second is interactions, um, and and then third is energy. And energy can include eating right, sleeping. Um, longer and um, all these, these sorts of things. How do you identify, by the way, um, I know how you identified those five factors in well-being. Tell me how you came up with these three factors in Fully Charged. Coming up with the three factors in Fully Charged was mostly going through a lot of research that I'd been accumulating on those topics uh, more qualitatively. But then it also did involve, we did some uh, outbound surveys looking at what were the keys to people reporting that they had days where not only they had the highest levels of daily experience, daily well-being, but also that they were engaged in their work. Um, and it, so that's, and it's rooted in the biggest concern that I have from a, especially from a workplace standpoint, but extends beyond that, which is that, I mean, most people have enough basic energy or they're charged enough to make it to work today. But the vast majority of people, somewhere between 80 and 90% by my estimates, are going to show up to work today or tomorrow and be running at nowhere near their real capacity for a majority of their waking day. 
And that's what seems immediately fixable to me for people in most circumstances in life where there are some things you can do to start to move that curve backwards. And I think uh, out of the 10,000 people we surveyed for that uh, work on fully charged, there were uh, just, I think it was 10 or 12% of pound samples we looked at who said they had a great deal of physical energy yesterday. And um, roughly, I think it was in the range of 20% said they had really positive interactions or did a lot of meaningful work yesterday when you ask them to think about the whole day. So it's, we've got to help people to um, work on those kind of one at a time and figure out how do you build those three elements more into your daily routine. It's, it's funny. So we've worked on this documentary about the book fully charged for quite a while. And the, one of the people who's interviewed in it and featured prominently is Brian Wansink, who originally wrote the book Mindless Eating and does all the fascinating experiments with how our choices and structural setup uh, determines what we'll eat throughout the day. Um, but if you if you take his his little tips, so if you've got a, a glass jar that has candy in it sitting out and people can see it, um, they'll consume far more than they would if the jar wasn't glass or if it was hidden or away from arm's reach. And so that what that tells you to do or to um, have at our house, we have jars of nut, mixed nuts sitting out and apples and fruits and vegetables all over because we eat what we see and what's convenient and easy, right? And when I travel, yeah. I keep those little packs with me everywhere I go. So I'm not tempted in the airport to make a bad choice, which is a lot easier. Um, but what I've learned from Brian Wansink and his work is that we can do some of the same things with our interactions where you can structure your day where you see more of and spend more time with the people who always pick you up a little bit instead of spending as much time around the relative who passes along her secondhand stress every time you interact. Right. right? Uh, yeah. And, and we can do the same thing with our work and our structure of our work. We can make sure that we do little things to bring the humanity back into our work, whether it's a, uh, having a thumbnail of someone in a contact file so that you can see the person you're serving instead of an anonymous Google letter next to their name or whatever. Um, there are these little tricks that just make it a little bit easier, less resistance to make good choices that boost daily well-being. I love that. And it, and it contributes to this uh, adding up all of these moments. All these moments of our life matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really like that. Um, what does it mean to build a cumulative advantage in terms of interactions? I wanted to ask you that. Yeah, it was you know it's a, that's a word combination that struck me maybe ten years ago when I was reading a, a academic paper from Tim Judge who was at Florida at the time I think, and he looked at that uh, national longitudinal study of youth over many years and uh, essentially found that each year you gained more I, I believe it was self efficacy or confidence he was studying um, that each year you gained a little edge. Um, so if you did between 16 and 18, that continued to amplify the gains in the next time period and interval. So you kind of build this advantage where it's not just um, a little bit better as would have been expected if you went from zero to one. But when you go from one to two, you get a little bit more of a boost because of the way that changes the dynamic there. And so I, I think you you see that with your interactions as well, where um, – and a part of this is because of, I mean, you've seen a lot of the work from Christakis and Fowler and others about the way those social inter, social interaction, you can debate the degree to which, but it, it has some contribution to the social dynamic that extends beyond an individual. 
And so if I have a great interaction uh, with my wife or my daughter says something meaningful as I'm walking out of the house that day, that carries on to the first person I interact with at work and amplifies that just a little bit more. So if we think about setting up our day like that, not only does it set us on the right trajectory, but I mean, there's also a dynamic of the, um, that gets debated sometimes as well about willpower by the end of the day where, um, it's a lot easier if you set yourself up to have, to not have a lot of tough food choices or a lot of tough interactions early in the day to be at your best when you need it later on in the day, most likely. Really, really like that. Um, we just have a, a, you know, maybe 10, 15 more minutes and I, and I wanted to get personal. Um, if any questions I ask you, uh, make you uncomfortable, of course, just feel free to, uh, we'll go on to the next question. Um, but there's some things I want to discuss with you. Um, one is that, um, and you have spoken about this on various occasions that, uh, you were diagnosed at age 16 with a very rare genetic disorder that causes cancer cells to appear in various parts of your body. And I found it very interesting how you've been a, you, um, I read that you've been experimenting with ways of slowing down the growth of tumors. So how, what sort of research have you done along those lines and what, what have you found? Yeah, I, I'm, I've been very open in recent years, especially with um, this most recent video about my own personal uh, battles. I've, been, I've essentially been battling cancer uh, since I was first diagnosed when I was 16 years old. And I have a really rare disorder that essentially shuts off the body's most powerful tumor suppressing gene. And so um, I lost an eye, all my vision in my left eye to cancer when I was 16. And the doctor said, you know, you will have cancer in your kidneys and pancreas and spine and all, all over your body over whatever long of a lifetime they thought I could live at that point. Um, and I currently am battling cancer in all those areas, um, which is a, an annual thing of doing CT scans, MRIs, and all that. So it it's kept me very focused on what are all the things that I can do, um, not just psychologically, but with my choices on food and diet and exercise activity, all that, and also with just traditional medical scans and sciences and drugs that are in uh, trials right now um, in order to hopefully decrease my odds of new cancers growing and growth rates slowing down and existing cancers spreading or metastasizing. And it's, I, think, I think it's important that, you know, I've, that I've been studying this long enough to know that, you know, anything that promises there's some miracle cure, if you just eat right and exercise or whatever, you won't get these cancers or uh, any other ailments. You, you know, that's the first sign to start looking somewhere else and not believe it. But I am increasingly convinced that the choices we make do significantly increase and decrease our odds. And it's always, I mean, it's kind of at the margin. So if you, if you really do the right things and eat a lot of healthy vegetables instead of fried foods and sugar and um, just loading up on carbohydrates and things like that, will that help over time with inflammation and potentially slow down cancer growth rates? I'm convinced based on the work I've studied that it will help to some degree, but everything's just kind of chipping away at the odds there. So I also do the traditional. So I've tried multiple approaches over time from the, the, the kind of change in my lifestyle dramatically, which I have done and written about to um, different clinical trials and chemotherapeutics and 
just I call and interview and read the research from top medical researchers on my condition, all these topics every few months, and um, also do just a, a whole week that's a battery of MRI and CT scans and blood tests and everything else at least once a year, just so I can stay ahead of this situation as much as possible. So I've I've learned a lot about managing cancer, hopefully as a chronic ailment for many years to come through that. When you were 16 and you, you got diagnosed, I want to go back to your, your frame of mind at that age. Were you, um, did you go through some existential like angst? Um, do you, do you, um, back then, did you, um, did you, and, and do you now fear death? You know, it's, it's a, it's a good question, especially given some of the topics that you're interested in have been talking about with uh, students and growth and development at that age. I, When I've looked back on that experience, it's almost hard for me to even believe my recall today, but I'd, I'd taken a lot of notes and written about it um, earlier on. And because I essentially grew up in a household where they were practicing positive psychology to an extreme every day. And I was doing all the little Rorschachs and block tests and with all the, with parents as teachers and psychologists and academics, that was my childhood. Um, when I found out about this disease and started to lose sight in my eye and had a lot of surgeries and so forth, um, I'm still mind boggled by how little it threw me off my normal course of well-being and development. Um, it, it's, it's really remarkable. I mean, I kept, uh, doing all the same things with my friends and athletics. And, um, of course it was difficult news and I had to react by, but everyone around me was from day one was saying, what can we do? How do we stay ahead of it? What are the next steps? And they weren't dwelling on something that was beyond their control and their actions and, words both said to me that, you know, we're going to keep figuring this out and stay ahead of it and things will be okay. And boy, I, I mean, in hindsight, I am so glad that I have not spent the last, whatever, 24 years since then, stressing out or dwelling on something that hasn't come to fruition yet. And I've had a pretty good life since then. Well, you know, I think that you're actually quite inspirational for people um, who, you know, a lot of people just uh, have generalized anxieties or just anxious and there is no specific reason. It's not like there's an impending, you know, like high probability of cancer or not. Um, and I think a lot of what you're saying is, you know, really so all that like worry is just really kind of wasting your life in a way. You know, you you can really be working on the things that, that you know you can do to increase your moment to moment experience in life. That's a great thought. I mean, I haven't thought about it that way before, but it's there's there are so many things that, and boy, I mean, I I see this. I worry more now about my kids having children than I ever did about myself before that, and it, I mean, just there's so much worry that even in that capacity as a parent that I build up for things that never really come through or cause anything. Right. So I mean, it, it'd be it'd be fun at some point to study the. Um, amount of wasted worry out there in our society today. And you know, I, I just got back from a trip. It was my 40th birthday with uh, some friends last week. And oh, happy birthday! <laughs> thank you. And it's it was 
it was interesting. We didn't have a television or watch any news. And boy, that helped my, I mean, there's just, you don't have as much to worry about when you don't watch the news for eight days. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> no, fascinating. It's, it's a really good point. And I, I wonder as well, um, and is like, is well-being a potential buffer against death anxiety? I think it is. I, from my experience, it clearly, I mean, my grandfather, Don, kind of raised me talking about, you know, when you have a full bucket, this was this metaphor he went on about from the 70s, was, you know, when you have a full bucket, it builds a reserve when things are trying to dip into it. That was the root of that book. Oh, I love that. And, and, it, and it really was like that. I remember my bucket was so full at that point that, yeah, something was really trying to empty it or dip from it. But the people around me were so good. They'd essentially built that reserve for me that lasted through a really tough time. And I was... I was just reading a, a study, small one, it was like 75 participants this morning, but they were looking at reactivity to stress, and they found that when people were focused on others and giving, as you might expect, that essentially created a buffer for the momentary physical reaction to stress throughout the day. And so I, it's fun for me now to see um, at, at kind of a, a micro level how that's being proven out, which is essentially what I experienced when I was 16, based on my recall. Wow. And, and something that um, speaks very highly of you is, is uh, almost everyone I talk to really, really does um, think highly of you. And um, we were having a discussion the other day and I was telling some of my colleagues that I was going to have you on my podcast and they, they said, you know, he's really a, a guy that, um, that lives his work. He um, is a very high character individual, I think is how, how my colleague phrased it, um, who really lives it. And, you know, it, it is very inspirational to a lot of people and, and to me in particular, because I do, um, as from very age, had a lot of these existential, uh, you know, just waking up in a, in a sweat at three in the morning, like, oh my God, I'm going to die someday. You know, like, I, I mean, does that ever happen to you anymore? Or um, what, what kind of buffer, does that ever happen to you ever? Has it ever happened to you? No, you know, it's, it's interesting where I, 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 I mean, I have stress about things that I think a lot of us do um, from more of a, more of an immediate threat and standpoint when you've got kids running around near the street or right. flying on a short runway on a prop plane or whatever. But um, it, outside of that, I, one thing I learned early on, probably before I had this experience, thinking back to it, it's a good question is that, I mean, it's the, you know, the one thing that I've got in my control today is that I know I've got the rest of this day to do a, at least a few, even if they're small, meaningful things that might have an influence on other people outside of my presence, whether I'm doing something else tomorrow or whether I'm not here tomorrow. Right. Um, and so that's it, it's it's oriented my kind of focus of a day for a long, long time where it's, it's it also – I mean, it creates some urgency to say, I want to do something that has more of a lasting impact. And that helps me to prioritize because nobody, nobody's going to sit around um, 10 years from now and say, oh, my gosh, Tom got to inbox zero on December 15th. Right. <laughs> so that's I mean, that helps me to at least get focused on a few things on a day to day basis that uh, make somewhat of a difference. And then it's been a fun part of working on all the books and videos and teaching as, as I'm sure you see and things like that where I mean hopefully that's a, that's an influence that makes a difference for kids and for students and uh, people that continues to grow in your absence 
Yeah, and I can I can definitely say that the work you've done um, will will continue to impact a lot of people. Um, you know, a hundred years from now, you know, um, it's really it's really important work, um, and and maybe even beyond a hundred years. Um, uh, let, let, let me just end with this one question. Um, so, what matters the most to you personally in life? I think, I mean, one thing is it matters a lot to me that I can make a contribution to something larger than myself that continues to grow when I'm gone. Hmm. Um, and that's, and so I, I try and orient things around that thought. And there are ways I do that that are, I would call very intensive, which is um, time with my wife and kids and closest friends and family members where that's that's intensive and hopefully even more long-term help in terms of development and influence and there are things that um might be a a quick fleeting thought that changes someone's day that i'll that i'll never meet that those those really count to me in aggregate too and so it's you know it's kind of i guess an interesting insight into how i think about my progress would be one and then I learned this from Don, my grandfather, is that we used to get it when we were first in the early years working on Strength Finder, we'd get a little report each morning talking about how many people had received their top five and gone through the assessment and so forth. And we we looked at that a lot more than we ever looked at any day to day or financials or anything like that, just to say how many how many people is some of this behind the scenes science having an influence on. I think even in analytical roles i i've learned you it's important to help people to do that so there's not only a can you see the person you're serving but there's some measure of the mission as well because it helps you to do more a week later a month later Mm. thank you tom um and i i really do feel truly honored to be able to chat with you today so thank you so much for your time and thank you. This is your the topics you're exploring are um very important for where i think the future of education's headed and what we're all thinking about for um, from a personal development and insight standpoint. Thanks, Tom. Have a great day. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. I hope you found this episode just as informative and thought-provoking as I did. If you'd like to read the show notes for this episode or hear past episodes, you can go to thepsychologypodcast.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com.
When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.